This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. I want to cut to it. This is going to be a very inspired show. This is the patron saint of the podcast. I'm not just saying it lightly. She's been on from the very beginning. She supports everything good. I've known her for a long time. And I could not be more excited that when she decided to run for the presidency, I totally believe she can win. I throw, I'm throwing my full support behind her and my network. And we're going to get into why in a little bit. But it's just an honor to have back the amazing Marianne Williamson. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me, Paul. It's always wonderful to be with you. I'm going to ask the, the obvious question first, just for the global audience. Why did you decide to run in this time, in this place, and now? I feel that I speak out of the same kind of collective voice, the collective yearning and, and activation going on inside the hearts of millions of people, including yourself. I am not saying that it has to be me, although I don't see anyone else who is doing uh, what I'm doing in the sense of naming what I believe needs to be named. That's what's essential here is that we start some radical truth telling. You know, I've worked for 40 years with people up close and personal in moments of great distress, having to endure times of trauma and chaos and ultimately trying to transform them. And one of the first things you have to do is get real. What's really happening here? Where did all this chaos come from? Where did the breakdown come from? Where have you yourself contributed to the problem? And then we can start having something, some real challenge going on um, to the problems that exist at the time. That's what this country has to do. And I think I bring with me not only a willingness to name the problems as they really exist, namely the way government at this point has formed such an unholy alliance with the forces of corporate greed, the way that our government has become a system of legalized bribery, the way it's now baked into the cake that a level of economic injustice is shackling the dreams and thwarting the potential of really a majority of Americans just so a few people can get rich. I'm willing to say that, which you're supposedly not supposed to say because the corporate donors wouldn't give to your campaign. Well, no corporate donors are giving to my campaign. They wouldn't want to, and I wouldn't want to accept them. Um, and the establishment uh, politicians and the political class doesn't want me to do that either because it's all they're all tied in together in this in this perch uh, by which I, what is now an, a, an overtly rigged system doesn't change year after year and election after election. So what I bring is a realization that we have to talk about these things. We have to put them on the table. The average American citizen has got to stop being disengaged. You can't just look away. It's too late for that. It's an all systems breakdown. Each and every one of us is necessary. Now, this goes back to the whole thing of why me or only me, not only me. I see myself as a kind of tuning fork because I see everything that I just said as basically on the hearts and minds of millions and millions of people. But we tend to talk about these things in private, whereas in terms of our public conversation, we've all been trained into this kind of sophomoric dialogue 
which lacks the authenticity, the transparency, the gut level, brutal honesty that we often practice in our own personal relationships. So we need to usher in an entirely new kind of political conversation where is re we're as real about what's happening in our country as we are real about what's happening in our own lives. Then some change can start to happen. Then you can put it on the table. Where have I been? Where have I not been? The person I say I am. And in this case, where has this country been and not been a, in the last modern era, a government of the people, by the people, and for the people? Because we're actually not. When Lincoln said that at Gettysburg that the men who died for the Union there had died so that a government of the people, by the people, and for the people would not perish from the earth, it's perishing now. We're a government of the corporations, by the corporations, and for the corporations. We are not a functioning um uh, democracy so much as we are functioning oligarchy. And at this point, the system will not disrupt itself, Paul. If that disruption is going to occur, it's going to be we the people who um, who make it happen. I'm willing to be tip of the spear, and I think I can do a really good job of being the tip of the spear, but all of us make up the spear. One of the things that has bothered me, the narrative that only the people that have run this thing into the ditch who spent 40, 50 years in the system, the people that with the old thinking, the limited thinking that has got us on a path to fascism where there are people hungry everywhere and without healthcare, that they and they alone have the monopoly on the right to fix it when term after term, time after time, they do the opposite. That's why I feel like we need something fresh. We need a new perspective. We need new paradigms. And it's going to take someone from the outside. We went outside and we got a game show host. It didn't work out well. Why can't we get someone who's been successful at everything they've done for a long time and done it with compassion? Why is that impossible when I say everything is possible? Well, first of all, the problem with President Trump was not his lack of political experience, but his lack of character his lack of integrity, his lack of compassion. Um, in terms of why can't we do it, we all know why we can't do it. Because a more honest, real, genuinely democratic humanitarian conversation is often at odds with the short-term profit maximization of huge corporate entities. And those huge corporate entities own Washington. Now, there are some very brave exceptions. Bernie Sanders is an obvious one. People who are in there day in and day out trying to disrupt the system. But at this point, once you're in that machinery, it can be very, very difficult to stand up to the machine. So I think that uh, the role of the president um, should be and can be uh, that of someone who names names, not names names on a personal level, but I mean names names in terms of the corporate entities and in terms of the, um, the systems that are so holding people down. We need to remember 64% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. 60% of Americans couldn't afford a, to absorb a $400 unexpected expenditure. 18 million people cannot fulfill the prescriptions that their doctors give them. One in four Americans live with medical debt. One third of Americans, uh, work, working Americans, live for less than, on less than $15 an hour and cannot afford a place to live. Meanwhile, in every other advanced democracy, these issues that I'm about to mention are considered moderate positions. Universal health care, where you don't even have any medical debt. You don't have people dying from lack of health care. These are positions that are moderate in every other country. Universal health care, tuition-free college and tech school, free child care, a livable wage, guaranteed sick pay, and guaranteed uh, maternity and paternity leave. What's happened in America is that the American people have been played. 
And the American people have been trained to expect too much, trained to limit their political imaginations. So that what happens now, Paul, is if you are among 20% of Americans, you know, the economy is doing pretty well. But that enchanted economic island is surrounded by a vast sea of economic despair. And within that sea, there then it, it, it's like a petri dish out of which emerges all manner of societal and personal dysfunction, depression, anxiety, suicide, uh, externalized rage. These things is, you know, we call it a mental health crisis, but the mental health crisis is a symptom of the deeper crisis, which is the economic injustice that's now baked into the cake in this country. And I'm glad you pointed out that other countries, this is normal, that we have, that they have all these things. They don't take them for granted, but it's part of the fabric of their lives and they have higher standard of living. They live longer. How do we get the message to the American people about this? Because you're the only one talking about this kind of stuff, this clearly, and then empower them to take the country back and to choose literally these things that will increase the quality of their lives, their children's lives, and begin the shift that we need to make. You know, Paul, a sociopath is someone who does not care. And an economic system, which is driven by economic factors, which have no no humane consideration uh, as part of that analysis whatsoever, is a sociopathic economic system. So you ask yourself, well, how does a sociopath work? Well, the minions of the sociopathic economic system have several ways of trying to muffle the sound of my conversation. One, they're doing this time just like they did last time. She's kooky. She's crazy. She's a um, uh, crystal lady, you know, all that stuff. So they're doing that. Even the press secretary of the president comes out with that stuff at the press briefing, the women of the view. So that's the first thing to realize that just because you read it on the internet about me doesn't mean it's necessarily true. Then the next one they come out with, oh, she's not a nice person. They'll be big on that one too. She's not a nice person. Well, I hope that the, you know, I'm a decent person. I'm, I'm not a perfect person, but I you know, I've seen myself described in ways that, I, no, that's not who I am. And then the next thing is a kind of press shutdown. So a lot of the news outlets that theoretically would cover the race of a declared candidate for the Democratic nomination for president, um, normally, if you're actually just practicing good journalism, I would be on more of those shows now. And um, I'm not. I'm, I'm on, I've been on ABC, which I appreciate. I was on once on MSNBC, um, but there's a broad panoply of those programs. Uh, and what, what they do is, you know, we have on the left, just like on the right, they basically take their instructions from uh, the political party that they most identify with. We're still getting out there. I mean, I'm, I'm on this show right now. I've got social media. Um, but it, in order to mount the kind of campaign that can override, get, that can, as you said, get out to the people, so the people themselves override those mechanisms, um, we need people to support the campaign and that, you know, Marianne2024.com, you know, somebody might not think their $3 or their $5 can make much difference, but let me tell you, it does. So that's really where, where it stands. If I can build a big enough ship to take on the turbulent seas of establishment politics during a presidential season, um, then we can create a political miracle here. But it's going to have to take all of us working on it who believe in this message and believe that the United States needs to make the kind of economic U-turn that my agenda represents. 
And we can all do it also by gathering small groups, inviting people in who are not aware of what you're doing and having discussions around a, you know, a circle or around a dinner table on a weekend. It's a grassroots movement. Bernie did that and did that well. One of the reasons they keep you off the shows, though, is last time, the more exposure you got, the more popular you got, the more Googled you got, and you scared them. And then they had to just kind of get rid of you. Because a lot of what you're saying is actually very popular with the general public by large numbers. Yeah. Yes. If you look at issue after issue, the majority of American people want universal health care. The majority of American people want the eradication of those college loan debts, or at least the majority of, uh, of that debt. The majority of American people want tuition-free colleges and universities. People are waking up to the fact that people in other advanced democracies to say they get more for their tax dollars is like a joke. So we might even, when we have lower taxes, still get so much less. And we'd actually, if we paid, some, in some cases, um, the issue isn't about the amount of taxes that we pay, but what we get for those taxes. And then, of course, there's the issue that the very rich in this country um, have what are, in many cases, obscenely low tax rates. And that's just one of the ways that this transfer of power, this transfer of opportunity and economic wealth was effectuated. Over the last 48 years, $50 trillion was transferred from the bottom 90% to the top 1% of Americans. You know, you and I grew up at a time when there actually was a thriving middle class in America, and there isn't anymore. Every year, the defense budget just grows and grows. They even give them more money than they ask for. And yet here, kids go hungry, and we have we never have money for books, meals, or kids, students. But we always seem to have money for wars and more weapons. We're up to almost a trillion dollars a year that could go into our economy. It would just be a game changer. Well, if you look at if we were to make a transition from a war economy to a to a peace economy, the return on your investment for a peaceful. Um, investments such as health and education, the return on investment is much greater than the return on investment for military spending. Um, but once again, Paul, it's going to have to be the American people who wake up because on Congress, on the level of congressional races, just like on the level of the presidential race, the machine, the establishment political machinery just tries to squelch anyone who's trying to have a more sophisticated conversation about what's happening in this country. And they did that to Bernie twice, and they've done it to other people. Will you talk about the uh, Biden administration's decision to open up more of Alaska, some of those very fragile lands to oil drilling on federal property after he promised that he would not do that in his campaign? Better believe it. He um, promised that there will be no further drilling on federal lands. None, he said, period. And of course, the president's approval of the Willow Project is an a gross hypocrisy and a gross betrayal of, of the environmental activists and basically an entire generation who would like to think uh, that they could survive well into old age on a habitable planet. The Willow Project um, is a, a ConocoPhillips project that is opening up a what Al Gore calls a deeply reckless and irresponsible project. There will be about 200 oil wells. There will be multiple pipelines. There will be airstrips. There will be all of the infrastructure that you associate with this kind of project. It will be deeply dangerous to people, deeply dangerous to animals, and deeply dangerous to the land. So at the very time, very moment, you know, and theoretically, the president had said that he understood that climate change was the, an existential threat 
uh, to humanity. But then, in fact, he has given more oil drilling, permit, drilling permits and even trumped it. And now with this, at the very moment when we should be ramping down fossil fuel extraction, he is ramping up fossil fuel extraction. What we need to do is to make an emergency level transition from a dirty um, energy grid to a clean energy grid. Even the in the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, the money, the very good investments that are provided there for green energy amount to 5% of the money that we are giving to the uh, defense establishment. And the def U.S. defense is the single largest institutional emitter of greenhouse uh, grasses on the planet. So, yeah, this is uh, this is the president who said it was going to stop. And instead, uh, he's put his foot on the pedal. I've had most of the top climate scientists on and they keep coming back on. So I've learned from them. I read the reports and without dramatic action and a change of course we're headed towards a mass die off lots of extinction the breakdown of society that's just fact it reminds me a lot and you you've done a lot of work with the 12-step people and helped a lot of people it reminds me of like addict behavior like the addict won't stop we have to do an intervention here or we're going to lose all, and the young people understand this we need we need dramatic we need an intervention here on this environmental energy thing Absolutely. That's exactly what it is. You know, when it comes to drugs and alcohol, people are pretty sophisticated now because unfortunately we've all had so much experience with people that we love, people all around us. And we've come to understand that you cannot guarantee physical survival when you are increasingly um, uh, overusing drugs, overusing alcohol. You cannot at, at a certain point guarantee your own physical survival. We need to get out of our, our magical thinking about the survival of our democracy and the survival of our planet, the survival of our species. We cannot continue like this without the very, very serious and present risk of what you were saying. There could be entire swaths of continents that could become uninhabitable. Massive food breakdown, massive economic breakdown, hundreds of millions of climate refugees. That could be coming down the pipe because this thing is not just something that's on its way. This is something that's already happening. We're already in an era of accommodation. Um, so the fact that the Willow Project, the president has um, uh, has approved the Willow Project is is horrifying. And if we don't deal with these things in an honest, truthful manner, it won't just magically go away. Like you say, we'll have catastrophic consequences. That's why leadership is getting out ahead of this, talking the tough truths, but like you and I have talked many times, if we all come together, and this is on all of us, and we had like a Marshall plan for rejuvenation and transformation, not only would we shift our course, but we'd lift the spirit, the collective spirit. There'd be millions and millions of great jobs. We could provide health care. This is an opportunity. But if the opportunity is not taken, it's going to become a catastrophe. It's just physics. Well, that kind of New Deal approach is what the Green New Deal is, of course. It would not only put us on the um, path to a green energy grid, but it would create millions of jobs. And of course, that's exactly why big oil does everything it can to resist it. And as long as big oil has the kind of power that it has in Congress and now apparently in the White House, then we have nothing to hope for. And then what you see, and this is, I think, one of the reasons I'm running, I'm watching the people of my generation. And when I say my generation, I'm talking about the adults who are alive right now, people are beginning to spiral down. People are beginning to fall apart. People are beginning to spiral into nihilism and cynicism and depression. And we've simply got to take each other's hands and say, no, we're going to, 
we're going to interrupt this right now. You know, the word inertia means the tendency of the object to move in whatever direction it's been moving until and unless there is the introduction of a counterforce. And that's what I hope people think this campaign is. It's the introduction of a counterforce. And I'm sure at some point you just couldn't sit on your hands and hope for something to be better. You jumped in. And I want to be clear, I believe you can win. I don't care what the media tells us. They told us Trump couldn't win. He won. They've told us a lot of things weren't going to happen, and they did. Yeah, Hillary was a shoe-in. Obama couldn't win. We weren't ready. Obama was a long shot. Right. You can win. And if uh, if we all band together and we lift it up from the bottom up and grow this thing up, it can happen. They're going to do everything they can to stop it, but the people can overrun the barricades, metaphorically. Well, this seems like a great time to mention my website again, marianne2024.com, everyone, M-A-R-I-A-N-N-E, 2024.com. I hope that your listeners who agree with what we're saying uh, will participate because without without building that big ship, and we all need to do that together with our donations and our volunteering, et cetera. We simply won't be able to hand the turbulence, handle the turbulent seas of a presidential campaign. Yeah, this one doesn't just take a village. It takes the continent, all of us. I'm semi-rhetorically going to ask, or more, weren't you amazed at the speed of the bank bailout when it's rich people who, by the way, have a long history of saying they want the government to not be involved, not help students, not help the homeless, not get involved with health care. But when their bank, through reckless speculation, based on laws passed under to the Trump administration, and even going back to when they destroyed Glass-Siegel under Clinton with Phil Graham, the Texas uh, senator, then all of a sudden, all that screaming about socialism for the poor is uh, drowned out by begging to be bailed out again, or else we all suffer. Uh, I'm, I'm painting in broad strokes, but that's how I see it. But the speed, it happened over a weekend, and we're still dealing with them trying to figure out if they can forgive Jim's student loan at 22000 Yeah, yeah, and the president comes out within a couple of days to give a speech about um, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, but he doesn't come out to give a speech about East Palestine, Ohio. Um, absolutely, we'll rescue. First of all, let, let, let's look at the difference, though, here. I think there is some nuance here that's very important. There is a difference between the depositors in the bank and the rich tech investors. Now, many of those rich tech investors were uh, depositors in the bank, obviously, but many of them weren't. So there's a difference between making the depositors whole and making sure that the people who were the investors in those projects, who then were some of the people who actually caused on the run of the uh, cause the run on the bank, they should not be able to have any part uh, of, of of the value or the benefit of of those um, of those deposit the projects created by those depositors who were made whole. And it's also very important that the bank executives who had taken out multi-million dollar bonuses for themselves, as well as millions of dollars for themselves uh, in the days and weeks leading up to the uh, to the collapse, absolutely that that money be clawed back. People need to be held accountable for what happened here. But also we need to hold the government accountable because the government, every every politician um, who voted in favor of that deregulation, where we went from after $50 billion, there's government oversight, to $250 billion, there's government oversight. Over the critiques of people such as Elizabeth Warren, such as Bernie Sanders, all of those guys should be deeply ashamed. 
And as you said, it started way back when, back in 1933, when Franklin Roosevelt and a very um, sober and responsible administration in response to the Great Depression instituted the Glass-Steagall Act to make sure that those regular deposits and bank investments were kept a firewall between them. That uh, that deregulation, the repeal of Glass-Steagall is what allowed a lot of this to be let in back in the 90s. And then um, all of this started. And then there was the Dodd-Frank Act that was uh, was instituted to control some of this. Then the, the the way the revolving door works, you look at someone like Mark, uh, Barney Frank, who actually has his name on that bill, the Dodd-Frank Act. And then he, when he leaves Congress, works for a bank and actually starts lobbying against the bill that he himself had had instituted. So um, once again, we have to do, we have to recognize all the ways in which these things are not separate, whether it's the Willow Project or East Palestine or the collapse of those banks. It all has to do with the dirty underbelly, the, the, the real cancer underneath all the cancers, and that is the undue financial influence of all these corporate entities, uh, whether it has to do with big oil, whether it has to do with banking, whether it has to do with railroad, whether it has to do with gun manufacturers, whether it has to do with uh, defense contractors this kind of matrix of corporate overlords, uh, which right now runs the government and um, by running the government runs our country. Perfectly said. And really just all comes down to the money, the dark money, not showing where it comes from, Citizens United and all this other stuff. And it is legalized bribery. When I go to Europe, they say, oh, you call it lobbying, but that's just bribery. Absolutely correct. It's a euphemism. Absolutely. It is. It's legalized bribery. You mentioned East Palestine. What a disaster. And if it wasn't for people like David Sirota talking about it weeks before it sort of went mainstream, the, it was amazing to me. The media just refused to cover it. And it was having Chernobyl-like implications. It's still a mess. You kill, still can't breathe there or drink the water. The creeks light on fire. The rivers, the animals are dying. And yet, eh, so what? And there's a train derailment almost every day happening. And... These are the same people that once again lobbied with bipartisan support to deregulate the safety, cause and effect. It was uh, Trump who originally did the deregulation of the brakes brake system. Um, you know, the, the Democrats make some efforts. Uh, the, I, I think with in general, when we're talking about the Democratic Party, they make the right efforts usually. But much like the Biden administration, they are so weak compared to the kind of efforting that needs to be made. They do not exhibit the kind of, of spine. They do not exhibit the kind of moral courage that is necessary to override this extraordinary force by which property rights, basically, that's what we're talking about here. The primacy of property rights are placed time and time again above the safety and health and well-being of the American people. Now, the Democratic Party that did have that spine was the Democratic Party of uh, Franklin Roosevelt. And that's what we need now. We need a new Rooseveltian age of a president who would say to all those corporate forces who are trying to stymie this kind of repair, he said, I welcome their hatred. That's exactly the kind of talk we need in a president today who's not necessarily running again, who's just getting in there and saying, this is who I'm going to appoint. This is the executive orders that I'm going to make. You know, not that the president has a magic wand. We don't want the president to have a magic wand. But one thing that the president has in addition 
to the executive order capacity, to the sway of Congress, uh, to the appointments that uh, he or she can make is the bully pulpit. A president who simply lays it out on the table and says, we're gonna be real with the American people. I'm gonna be real with the American people, even if you guys aren't going to be. And don't you think people would be inspired and respond to some fighting on their behalf, like they were with Roosevelt? I love when the Supreme Court tried to ditch his New Deal. He said, you do that, and I'm going to expand the court, and you all be irrelevant. And they backed off because he fought. Otherwise, there would have been no New Deal. Absolutely. How do you feel coming into this right now? You sound strong and inspired and focused. Well... Yeah, thank you. They're already sending cannonballs, you know, the president's press secretary, the women of the view. I hear there's an article coming out that, you know, about what a terrible person I am. But, you know, I think I got some emotional antibodies from the last campaign. Uh, I think I have a thicker skin. I just hope I, I know that people who hear what this campaign is about, I am absolutely po positive that the majority of people, you know, Cenk Ugar on, on The Young Turks said something I thought was interesting. He was talking about the fact that Bernie had come within striking distance of the presidency. He was talking about the fact that the political establishment machine does so much to suppress the real progressive voice. But he said, somebody is going to make it. Somebody is going to make it. And that's how I feel. In fact, I know it because this kind of effort for actual economic justice, not just for the alleviation of stress, but for genuine economic reform in this country that would actually help tens of millions of people get out of daily economic struggle, spread their wings, cast off the invisible chains that bind them. This is backed by so many people's prayers that their lives might be, that their lives might be better. By such a, it, it backed by such a a dedication to what should be in I, the book of Isaiah, it says, justice, justice, thou shalt pursue justice. Now, whether I'm able to make it all the way through, it will take tremendous efforting on the part of everyone who hears the message to exponentially increase it by talking to their friends, by sending donations, by volunteering and so forth. If I don't make it all the way to the White House, if we do this campaign correctly, we will still get closer, that much closer to the moment when that fabric is going to rip open, that veil is going to rip open and somebody is going to rush through. So I can't be so much attached to it being me as, it, as I'm attached to it happening. And I'm attached to me playing whatever part I can best play in making sure that that moment does occur, whoever it is. And I know you're only human, you're very sensitive and empathetic, but don't listen to them. You, the people that know you know you. And I think actually the fact that they're already attacking tells me they're frightened. Well, I think they're rattled, yeah. The same way they did when you started, yeah, when you start talking about the pharmaceutical industry in that debate, oh my God, did you get attacked? That was like, you touched on a, the third rail, but we need someone. And right now it's you, because I'm not hearing this from other people running for president. So why not? We have to we have to put it out there and let's see where it goes. And by the way, they're still talking about things you brought up four years ago. To me, it introduces it to the conversation. The outcome is beyond our control. But if we work as hard as we possibly can, then that's all we can do. Well, and I think also, as you've mentioned, the majority of people agree with this message. So if we get this message out to a majority of people and we get the truth of who I am and of what this agenda is and what I would do, 
um, then I think that we've got a whole different game. And I think that people who are Democratic primary voters are very open to the conversation regarding someone other than Joe Biden uh, facing the Republicans in 2024. Um, the president, from, for many reasons, having to do with uh, college loan debt, having to do with uh, not raising the minimum wage, having to do with the Willow Project, having to do with oil drilling, um, and, and other, other circumstances regarding his, uh, his personhood and his uh, administration. It is a valid thing to say. You know, he might not be the perfect guy to beat Trump in 24, even though he was in 20. I think that the DNC and the Democratic establishment is just trying to white knuckle, just trying to will their way into this. This is not the way you run a democracy, to try to clear the field so that no one else can primary him. That's not democracy. And I think people are beginning to realize that, that, hey, whoever feels like running should run. And it should be the American, excuse me, it should be the Democratic voters or whatever in that primary. Uh, it should not be the DNC making that decision. This should not be like 100 years ago, a bunch of men sitting around a table, smoking cigars, deciding who the nominee is. It should be the people. And I think that there are a lot of people uh, already who get, look, I don't know if on election day, primary day, I will vote for her, but I'm willing to support this campaign being out there. And I do not like the obvious ways they're trying to squelch it. Yes. And Biden did not keep a lot of promises, especially to the young people. And they kind of saved the Democratic Party's ass across the board and in Georgia and other places like that. So and they they're not dumb. They, I've talked to them. They, we, I've had them on the show. They they see the betrayal and they're looking for alternatives. I think Joe is ripe to be primaried. I think black Americans also have. I mean, when you think of all the black Americans who stood in line for seven, eight hours and there has been no substantive uh, movement on police reform, there has been no substantive movement on codifying voting rights. You know, they make stabs at it. They make efforts at it. And then when it doesn't happen, go, yeah, it's too bad. Couldn't do it. It's another thing that I find interesting, Paul. There are things that if a Republican president does them, Democrats go, oh, that's so terrible, because it is. And then if a Democratic president does the same thing, they go, oh, poor baby, poor baby, they wouldn't let him, when sometimes they didn't let him, and sometimes he didn't even try. And sometimes even when they wouldn't let him, he didn't go the extra mile to laying it down and making sure that even if he couldn't accomplish it, the American people realize what happened there. So yeah, if we could just keep voting for the status quo, nothing's going to change. And I think that's what people need to need to remember. It's not that they even need to recognize it because we all do recognize it. Hello, this is at this point, the status quo will not disrupt itself. If we are going to disrupt it, it's going to be because we the people do so. And um, to expect those who drove us into the ditch, as you said, uh, to be the one to lead us out of it is becoming increasingly absurd and people see that. Yeah, and I think it might have been, I, I don't want to ascribe it to Einstein, but someone smart once said the definition of insanity is doing the exact same thing over and over again and then expecting a different result. If you want change and everybody agrees they want change, change, we need change to survive. We need change for a million reasons. You can't vote the same old way. You can't act the same way. You can't make the same old choices. That's just logic and also life and the three-dimensional realm. That's how it works. Einstein said you can't solve the problems of the world from the same level of thinking you were at when you created them. Uh, traditional politics is a very transactional model. Everything is from the head, from the neck up. 
And that's what makes it sociopathic. It doesn't, there's no compassion there. It looks at numbers rather than at a hungry child, just the humanitarian reality of a child who is hungry. That is what should drive us. We we really shouldn't be run like a business. We should be run like a family. You take care of your children, you take care of your home, which in our case is the earth itself. So it's more than a paradigm shift. And it takes more than just thinking a few policies here and there will fix it. We need to initiate a season of repair. And all of us need to see ourselves as part of it. All of us need to recognize that citizenship is simply a layer of a well-lived life. This is a full systems breakdown and all of us have to involve ourselves now. And that's not just even on the federal level, it's on the state level, it's on the city level, the community level, and the personal level. Where can I do better as a human being? And isn't universal healthcare a universal human right? Well, you know, it's become a slogan to say a human right. It is in the minds of some and not in the minds of others. I will tell you this, in the richest country in the world, it's it, an absurdity and an obscenity that we do not have it. I'll tell you that much. And then that causes massive bankruptcy. You don't have that in any European country. No one goes broke from medical debt. Uncertainty, stress, trauma. And death, people are traumatized and lose people. I feel like, and here's the irony, single payer and some of these other uh, systems, which are proven to work, actually save billions and billions of dollars. They're cheaper, they're more effective, and they're more humane. Yeah, when people say, how do we afford to pay pay for it? The real issue is how do we afford not to? It's now, healthcare is about 18.3% of our GDP, much less in other countries. And as you were saying, we have an $88 billion medical debt. One in four Americans are in medical debt. You have, most people listening right now know someone who is rationing their insulin. People are embarrassed to tell you, but you'd be surprised some of the people say, yeah, well, I take it when I can. Or they run up to Canada or they run, run to Mexico to try to get their, their insulin. This doesn't happen where there's a universal uh, healthcare system. Nobody, nobody's putting GoFundMe uh, sites on the website to try to pay for their life-saving operations. Not in Denmark. We've been trained to expect too little. And that's why the awakening has to begin with us. The awakening has to begin with us and our willingness to say, hell no. And damn right, I'm going to vote for a candidate who says these things, even though you would have me believe that, oh, you can't listen to her. The reason they say I'm unserious, Paul, is because they realize how serious I am about all these issues. It's so funny. Uh, years ago, too, I went to see Ralph Nader, who I was told was boring and non-charismatic and not that bright. And it was all the opposite. Not, not that bright. Oh, God. That was in uh, 1999. I thought, oh, no wonder why they're sh they're hiding this guy. Or That's right. That's right. This guy's dangerous. Oh, my God. Yeah, dangerous to you. That's what I said to somebody. Was, You're dangerous. Dangerous to you. <laughs> Yeah, exactly right. You're serious. I want to hold for now that you can win because I believe it. Anything is possible. And really, I feel like humanity, this country needs a miracle, but we're going to have to work for it. We can't just lay around and watch cat videos and hope it happens. We need to make it happen. And then the universe helps those that help themselves. Well, our history in this country is that we do make those political miracles happen. We responded to slavery with abolition. We responded to the institutionalized oppression of women with women's suffrage. We responded to segregation with the civil rights movement. And none of those efforts uh, were considered 
reasonable. None of those efforts were considered probable uh, for victory. Uh, and certainly there would have been desperate days for suffragists and for abolitionists and for civil rights workers. We certainly know that they were. But they were backed by what Martin Luther King called cosmic companionship. They were part of that moral arc of the universe that is long, but it bends towards justice. And what we're going through in our country today is simply the latest iteration of that same struggle between the ideals of liberty and equality on which we purport to stand versus those forces who usually for their own economic purposes have no intention whatsoever of allowing those principles to be actualized. Other generations in the past have risen up against those forces and it is simply our turn. Seems to come around every 60 years. They had the Civil War, six years later, fascism was on the rise. We fought it both here at home and abroad. Six years later, we had the six, uh, the civil rights movement. And now it's six years later. It's like this the time's come. And hey, what else do we have to do? We're on the planet. We've been given the gift of life in this beautiful country on this magnificent earth. Get involved. Get involved. Give your life a purpose, whatever it is. It doesn't have to be this campaign. But for God's sakes, join the movement and be a part of the solution. Find your way. And this is an excellent opportunity because if we don't do it politically, it's not going to happen. I remember when you were running for Congress and I was supporting you in Los Angeles that people always say in the new age back then, oh, you don't want to get into politics. It's so low vibe. Actually, if you don't get into it, you're going to live in a low vibe place. You have to, hey, bring it everywhere. Real spirituality, real humanity is in the trenches not in any lofty place. You can go up there on the weekends, but you better take care of business down in the trenches if you want to have a better life for you, your child, and for people who haven't even been born yet. Gandhi said that if you don't think religion has anything to do with politics, then you don't understand religion. That's all. And also that, that Franklin Roosevelt had said that we wouldn't have to worry about a fascist or a communist takeover, he said, as long as democracy delivers on its blessings. And democracy has not been delivering on its blessings. And that's what we, that's what we need to make sure of now. Um, democracy needs to deliver. And the reason we are so vulnerable right now to fascism and to neo-authoritarianism is because uh, democracy is not delivering. You can't just fight a disease. You have to proactively create health. We have to proactively create a more just society and the forces of injustice will not have the power that they have now. And it's right. We fell asleep at the wheel and we woke up with an oligarchy, but now we have to take things back. I'm going to let you go because you're campaigning. You're doing a bunch of stuff across the country and up in the New England. I want to usher you out. Will you speak directly to the people with an inspirational message? I would say a call to action to become involved. Thank you. First of all, Paul, I want to thank you. And to anyone who has been listening to this conversation, uh, if your heart says yes, uh, I want to hear more. I'm interested. Please go to Marianne2024.com. Um, uh, the early primary states are New Hampshire, South Carolina. Um, I'm certainly going to be visiting those states a lot soon, plus Nevada, plus Michigan, uh, <clears throat> plus Georgia. But wherever you are, you can you can participate. Um, and please push that donate button if this aligns with your heart. You can't donate if you're not a citizen of the United States, but even there, you can still talk it up on your own social media, your friends, etc. cetera. Um, and I think Paul has you know, said it so eloquently. We were asleep at the wheel and we woke up one day and it's an oligarchy. 
Well, we were asleep before, but we are collectively waking up now. And if you feel that my presidential campaign is part of that awakening and can help awaken us and actually change things in this country, then please join. Join the campaign, Marianne 2024. And um, please know that uh, as you do so, uh, I'm sending you my deep gratitude and love. So thank you, Paul. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.